please open in your Bibles to, wait for it, the book of Acts. The book of Acts. For those of you that have been with us um, for a considerable amount of time, we began this series on the book of Acts uh, in September of 2019. And we are now in the final section of that book. We've taken some breaks, summertime, holidays, other reasons. We've done topical series to interrupt. But this morning we're picking up in chapter 23, beginning in verse 12. And I am going to work really hard because there is a lot of narrative detail here to summarize and not simply describe with time-consuming effort uh, the details we see here. But I think there are some practical and immediate applications in the text that I can point to that make even an account such as this that is densely detailed. Luke gave us a a really up-close look at Paul's trial there in Caesarea that jumps off the page and that we can take into our week uh, this week. So Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 12, we're going to read um, uh, through uh, to the end of the chapter, and I'm going to pray before we do. My message is entitled this morning, A Good Reason to Stand Trial. I stole that from Kevin DeYoung. I have no idea what he preached in his message, but I thought that was a good title, and uh, as Kevin is apt to do. And I want to pray that God would meet us through his word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, your gracious word to us. And I pray, Lord, now in light of all manner of distractions, that you would help me to use an economy of words to communicate what is on your heart for us this morning, and you would help us to listen carefully to what the Lord says from his word. Lord, speak now, Lord, from your word, that we might go into this week with the hope that this story has brought to not only its original recipients, but to believers for generations, and use These words, your inscripturated words, to deepen our love for Christ, his church, and his dazzling mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 23, beginning with verse 12, the editor has subtitled this, A Plot to Kill Paul. Let's read. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush 
So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is this that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. Chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down, and with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case before Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since though you, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, note this, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. 
And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything I laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience both Before God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. We'll stop there. Thanks be to God for his word. We are beginning the last, if you will, chapters of the book of Acts a book which we have pointed out and which you have also seen was volume two of a two-volume work, the first volume being the Gospel of Luke. When Luke wrote Acts on the scrolls that he or his scribes recorded it, the Gospel of Luke and Acts were knit together, sewn together. They were not separate as they are in our Bibles. And why that's important is when we began this series in the book of Acts, we read to you from the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts what Luke said was the purpose for his writing. And we have this to project behind me. Quote number one, Dave. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke began this way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, having delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke to give an orderly account of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And since when you finish Luke, you immediately turn to find another volume connected to it, we're not surprised then to read in the opening verses of Acts, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles 
whom he had chosen. So we are in a book that unapologetically puts Jesus as the main character, as the primary agent, as the, if you will, pinnacle of the story. But in the book of Acts, we have seen again and again and again how Jesus now ascended, having died on the cross, been buried and raised three days later and taken up into heaven 40 or so days later after that to be seated at the right hand of God Almighty. Jesus delights in his ascended reign to work through ordinary people and everyday ways to advance the message and mission of the gospel to the end of the earth. When we were last together in the book of Acts, Jesus appeared to Paul at a moment when Paul may have even despaired of his life. It's found in verse 11 of chapter 23. It says, on that night, the Lord stood behind Paul and said, take courage. For as you have testified to me about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. That's really the the foundation of this passage. And the pinnacle, if you will, the sweet spot, is what Paul claims in the last verse of his defense to Felix. I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection. I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection. But the turning point in the entire story is an unnamed nephew. I suspect most of us didn't even know Paul had a sister. I didn't. A nephew on which the mission of Paul and the message of the gospel rests in order to reach Rome. And so, reflecting on those realities, Christ's promise and presence to Paul in prison, and the defense of the hope of the resurrection before Festus, before Rome, as he moves closer to Rome, if you will, and God's using of an unnamed nephew to save the apostle for almost certain death is simply this. And I think we can apply this this week. We are called to live courageously for the gospel. But we must remember, God is in control when you are not. And we must hold fast to the hope of the resurrection. Those are my three points. We are called to live courageously for the gospel. If you're called to be a Christian, you're called to live courageously for Christ. Maybe not to the extent that Paul was, but nevertheless, with confidence and conviction that what we not only believe is true and makes a claim on our lives, but with those God enables us to live our faith before that Christ is calling them to. But in order to live courageously for the gospel, 
we must first remember that God is in control even when we are not. And that has certainly been tested in my life and perhaps yours too. That certainty, that confidence that God is in control during the last 10 months. And so let's look at the passage first. How God uses an unnamed nephew to thwart a plot, verses 12 to 22. It was just another day in the book of Acts and a group of 40 assassins decide, make a vow, it says an oath, that before they eat dinner, before kickoff tonight at 6.30, they were going to kill Paul. I don't think I've ever had one person, well, maybe my mom, plot to harm me. I'm just kidding, mom. Although you did have an expression, she watches me, and you know what I mean. If I didn't knock off what I'm doing, something about my teeth being relocated down my throat, something like that. Love you so much. (laughs) Glad I got braces. I suspect you haven't either. But the Bible says trials come in many forms. Many, many kinds of trials. Some ordinary, daily, every day. Some seasonal. Some more like a yearly trial, difficulty. Some lifelong trials that we face, confront, challenge us every day. This was Paul's trial. A plot to kill him. And they went to the chief priests and shared their plot. And whereas we're expecting the chief priests, these religious authorities who have the Torah to say, are you guys out of your minds? That breaks the Mosaic law. They are complicit. They agree. They support the plot. What's remarkable to me in this entire passage is verse 16. The son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. He went and entered the barracks, it says in verse 17, and told Paul of the plot. And then Paul, getting the attention of one of the soldiers who guarded him, takes this young man, probably 20 years old, according to scholars, but some argue that since the soldier took the young man by the hand, he might have been might have been 10 or 11, and takes him and brings him to the tribune, and then the nephew tells of the plot he has overheard, verses 19 and following. Paul's life will be spared. When your life is not in control, when my life is not in control, when our lives that we confront and walk through as a church feel like they are not in control, we must remember that God is in control. When we got this week after seven months of pleading, praying, paying bills, 
our septic design for 278, the parsonage. I rejoiced. I don't understand a single thing on this piece of paper. This is for you, David. That's why I brought it. And I had this thought. It gives me a sense of control that we're back on schedule, that we'll be able to finish the when we told the bank we would. And life seemed better. That's a bad place to put my hope for control, isn't it? But nothing like in terminal delays and delays and delays in something you need or feel you need or want or putting your hope in to feel like life is out of control or disappointments and disappointments and disappointments that don't go away Or fill in the blank. I have more things I look to to give me a sense of control. You've heard me say this. Than my vacuum cleaner has attachment. And do you know why? Because it's hard to rest in God's sovereignty in a way that practically every day says to him, Lord, I trust you. With everything that's out of control, it doesn't mean you're passive, but it certainly doesn't mean put your hope in what you do control. Paul's hope was in verse 11. The person who visited him reminded him of his presence and gave him that promise. I am with you, Paul. You have spoken faithfully of my actions and I will send you to Rome. And that is our hope too. We have a promise and we have the promise of his presence by the Holy Spirit that God is with you as we together participate in this great mission called serving Christ. That's the first foundation, if you will, of living courageously for the gospel. We have to remember and live out of that memory, the reality that God is in control. Do you find yourself in a perplexing situation or season? These are my application questions. Are you ever tempted to believe God has forgotten you? Paul may have been tempted to believe God had forgotten him. It was not going well. How have God's promises and presence been a comfort to you in the past? And how might he this week want to remind you of his promises and his presence in those spaces and relationships and scenarios when you are not in control? It gets better because not only does the unnamed nephew save Paul, in one sense, from the plot, but did you notice the pagan Lysias, the commander, gives Paul 470 soldiers and horsemen and spearmen. I mean, that's what you want in Fortnite, the video game, right? Isn't that what I always talk to the kids in children's ministry about? They talk to me, at least, about their video games. I want 400 of those soldiers when I've got 40 planned assassins coming me. Paul 
gets a small army given to him and a horse to ride and a letter going with him, delivering him safely. Really? This is incredible. The story of the assassins was astonishing enough. The story of God using Commander Lysias to protect Paul. And I think Luke wants you, if you'll let Luke, the narrator, tell his story to get this because he repeats the story again of the conspiracy, of the plot, painstakingly. In the letter, Lysias will read. It's as if in our devotions we're in such a hurry to get to the point that we miss the point that Paul's deliverance as God's servant is miraculous, but it rests on the promise that God promises to protect his servant. Verse 11. And isn't that how God works today? If you believe in the gospel... Your answer must be yes. No, I don't have a promise that says if there are two assassins waiting for me, which there aren't, that God's going to deliver me. But I do have this reality, and oh, how quickly I forget it, even on Communion Sunday, that when Christ went to the cross, and over my head and yours was a verdict, Capital punishment, eternal hell, wrath for just the arrogance and self-centeredness and self-worship I've committed in the last week. And he willingly, willingly, cheerfully, Hebrews says, with joy, not only took the cross, but received the penalty As Mike reminded us, Lord, those words moved me during communion. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He willingly bled on Calvary, taking, if you will, the assassination due you and me for our capital offenses against a holy God and died fully, completely satisfied. God's justice, so that today, rather than being given a promise of safe travels and horsemen and spearmen, although that sounds cool, I'm promised a reception in eternity. And you are too. And I don't know, but I think when I see him face to face, And I behold the reality of those songs that we sang. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That the preciousness of that sacrifice will so fill our souls. That we will say, we must hold fast to the hope of the resurrection. We must hold fast. To the hope of the resurrection. And that's my final point today. Enemies of the gospel will oppose Christian Tertullus. A lawyer, I'm told. I like lawyers. 
I'm the son of one. This was a high-paid lawyer, apparently, according to the scholars, in chapter 24. Brings his charges against Paul. You're a plague, he says. Did you notice that? He's a plague. Meaning, this man takes life by his actions. He stirs up riots. Verse 5. Among all the Jews, he's a ringleader. A rioter. And not only that, he's profane. He profaned the temple by bringing that non-Jewish person into the temple precincts to offer sacrifices and fulfill his vow. He's a plague. He's a political rioter. And he's profaned the temple. He is falsely accused by Tortillus. Because enemies of the gospel always oppose Christians. But Paul then speaks very calmly and courageously in verses 20 and 21, addressing each one of his charges, each one. Regarding the the charge of the the plague and, and the riotous behavior, he says in verse 12, you did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in synagogue or in the city. Neither can you prove what you now bring up against me. In other words, I did know none of these things. And then regarding temple worship, I love this verse 14. I confess to you that I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of the right of the just and the unjust. So, verse 16, I always take planes to have a clear conscience. And then he finishes with this. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial today. What do we learn from Paul's example of living courageously when enemies of the gospel falsely accuse us? I think Paul reminds me, and I hope he reminds you, that when we are called to live courageously for the gospel, we have to remember the hope of the the resurrection, meaning Christ is your advocate today. He's my advocate today, and he's not only advocating for me when it comes to my righteousness, 1 John 2, when I sin, and his satisfying sacrifice But he's advocating on behalf of the gospel to those I am defending it to. He is our advocate, our faithful witness. And so when we are called to live courageously, we must live out of the hope of that resurrection. You may work, and I'm sure I do too, In situations where words will not do. You cannot speak freely of the hope of the resurrection. So how do we live out courageously our faith then? Well, if words are not allowed, then we must live out by our actions. I know in workplaces like yours... And perhaps mine. Christians are caricatured behind their backs. 
There's texting threads that I'm not a part of. Or Facebook chats. Oh, I heard of one this week. Thank God I wasn't on it. But Instagram blew up this week because of a snow day that was being called. It was supposed to be a private Instagram chat, but then the public authorities heard about it and it kind of got shut down. Statements about your work, assessments of your competency, caricatures of your intelligence. Ridicule your personality. What does it look like to live courageously? Well, when I don't live courageously because I live not with a hope of the resurrection, there's a final verdict where, thank God, on that day, Christ will advocate for me. But there's a final verdict for everyone's life where we will give an account for how we live life in this life. If I truly believe that Christ is raised and the hope of the resurrection I am trusting in, then I will, yes, love those who ridicule me. Yes, I will not cede to them my need for their approval or affirmation. I will pray for them through the help of the Holy Spirit. And why I think this challenges us is because we have a hard time doing this in the church, don't we? We don't need the workplace. It happens in the church. I was once a member of the church, and I'm guilty at times of saying things or not doing things or doing things and not saying things that that didn't necessarily speak of that my hope was in the gospel and that final verdict that will one day be given where I've been set free and my righteousness is clear and my welcome is sure, but I wanted a sense of justice now. I demanded it. And I missed an opportunity through my actions to display the hope of the gospel. Oh, listen, I was a care group leader at that time. If you had asked me what the hope of the gospel was, I could dazzle you with how much I knew. But when the pull and tug of some of those relationships began to pull up things out of my heart, and I was not as kind or encouraging or patient or whatever words I needed to be, then, no, I don't think I truly was hoping in the resurrection. And so that's my encouragement to us today. What can we learn from Paul's example in terms of the conversations you are having with non-Christians? There may not be space for words, but do our actions, do our actions of graciousness, do our actions of, of patience and kindness, they may very well be encouraged. Christ is advocating for you. But if they aren't, or if you're being convicted, or if they fall short, then you have an advocate. He has more for you and I to do. Kenneth Gangle writes, quote five, Dave, sometimes God delivers his children by a simple word of a young relative. Sometimes he has to call in the cavalry. But at all times, he's ultimately in charge.
And because he's ultimately in charge, I can live out of the hope of the resurrection when I remember, when I remember Christ is with me. That is his promise. And the gospel is going forth into the whole world till the knowledge of the Lord covers it all. And in the meantime, he will use our ordinary circumstances and everyday opportunities to advance his kingdom. We are called to live courageously for the gospel, friend. May he give us grace this week to remember God is in control when we are not. And may he help us to hold fast the hope of the resurrection. For in that hope, Jesus gives us more. Let's pray. Lord, you have given acts to your church for a time such as this. Limited though we all feel. Pressed and stressed at different turns. We thank you that we can live courageously for the sake of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us all to remember you are not only in control, but providentially at work in the ordinary circumstances and people of our lives. Help us this week to hold fast to the hope of the resurrection. Remind us this week of the promise you gave to Paul, which is yes and amen for every believer. I am with you. I stand with you. That the message of the gospel may go forth through you. And together, Lord, together, Lord, help us, help us all to Live courageously for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.